but just to be able to have that opportunity, expose them to that academic vocabulary, the language of math, as we've been talking about a little bit before. So they're just a little bit more ready once they get to class. So it's not trying to take something away, it's trying to be a time saver and really be a support that is going to help your students see in the classroom and you'll be able to see it you know, on their face and their responses and everything. They're like, oh, I've heard this before. I'm starting to get it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Before we get started with this week's episode, I have two quick announcements for you. First, we've officially kicked off our new teacher shout-out feature on the podcast. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear a great message from an educator in South Texas. To send a shout-out to a teacher you'd like to recognize, simply record the audio file in any way you want and email it to us. For more information, including how to record and submit, go to elevationeducation.com slash community. And you'll see a link to the instructions on the homepage. As always, remember that Elevation has two L's. The second quick announcement is that the Elevation Scholarship application period is open until May 14th. Time is running out. So if you know an EL or a former EL who deserves a scholarship to help pursue their highest aspirations, check out our post at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. Now on to this week's episode of Highest Aspirations. What tools can we provide teachers to help make their instruction as efficient and effective as possible, particularly as we transition between remote, hybrid, and in-person settings? What does it mean to give quality formative assessments in virtual, hybrid, and in-person settings to gauge student progress, especially for English learners? What strategies for front-loading academic vocabulary and building opportunities for student agency will best support and engage our English learners? We discuss these questions and much more with Elevation's own Pamela Burgreen. Pam was a high school math teacher in New York City and Long Island for 10 years. After leaving the classroom, Pam worked on middle and high school math curriculum and assessments before starting with Elevation in early 2020. As you'll hear in our conversation, Pam brings multiple perspectives into the conversation around English learners and math, and we were really happy to bring her onto the podcast. Pam Burgreen, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you as well. I was uh, just thinking that you're, I think, like the fourth person from Elevation we've had on. Um, I've been really sort of uh, cautious about bringing folks on from Elevation (laughs) just because I don't want people to think we're trying to promote our people. But you have a really interesting um, sort of career path and background that I think will provide listeners with some really interesting context around math and language education. So I want to start in kind of an unconventional way for this podcast, which is to tell us a little bit about that career path and how that's kind of informed you moving forward. Sure. Um, so I started as a math teacher um, on Long Island and in Amityville. I did that for a while. I also taught in New York City. So about 10 years of teaching um, high school math. And then I transitioned to curriculum writing and wrote for several different products before starting here at Elevation about a year ago. Great. Yeah. So that trajectory, I feels like I feel like gives you a lot of different um, kind of perspectives into math education. And so let's start with your teaching experience on, on Long Island. Um, I know that we, when we talked before, you said that the supports you had for ELs weren't sort of working the way you hoped, which is unfortunately not uh, uncommon for people. Um, talk to us about how pulling students out specifically for math intervention may have actually hindered the progress necessary to help close the opportunity gap. Sure, well, I think the most important thing about intervention and differentiation in general is to be really targeted 
um, and know like what is the support that your students need and make sure you're providing that support. So one example was um, when I was teaching, I, I happened to step into the L classroom and the teacher was, you know, doing her best to review math with them, but she was doing something like area of a rectangle. And I was like, well, these students are in algebra and it's just so separate um, that it didn't feel like it was like that targeted support that the students really needed. So I think if there's a lot more, you know, collaboration between the math teacher and the specialist, that it would just be much more effective and helpful for our students. Yeah, I think anybody who's taught uh, can sort of envision what's happening there, that kind of separate room that a student's going to uh, because the teacher doesn't necessarily have the capacity or the time or even the expertise to work with this student, but there's a disconnect between what's happening in both places. Mm -hmm. And that can um, that can not only be like just that, that can be really a major problem because the student might be doing something totally different. If you don't catch it right away, um, it can become an issue, as you just mentioned. Um, so that's helpful. And then your experience working on math curriculum development. I think that's where it really gets interesting. And that's kind of why I want to bring you on because you had that experience in the classroom and then you went on to kind of do that. How has that experience helped shape your view of math instruction for English learners as someone who's actually now creating curriculum coming from the classroom and working with a curriculum that you're now in charge of kind of putting together? Yeah, so the first curriculum that I worked on, um, or the first product is Math 180, an, an intense intervention program. So actually not intended to be a full curriculum, it is intended to be this sort of separate intervention class. And, you know, one thing that really carried over for me is that a lot of supports that are available for intervention students really do work really well for English learners as well, such as sentence frames and starters. And, you know, there's a lot of what I consider binary relationships in math, it's proportional or not proportional or linear, nonlinear, positive, negative, et cetera. You know, that's really important for students to understand the difference. So you can offer them, you know, just like circle the one and they can, you know, just offer those supports. So that type of stuff I think really carries over. Yeah, for sure. And that's, and that's like, that's the thing Like you talk about I mean, it's very mathy talking about binary and 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 everything else. And, try, and I, I try to get my head around it because I was a language teacher, and I've done so many of these interviews now with 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 math teachers. But you find that you know the supports necessary, particularly when it comes to language, um, are really quite similar. And I'll let you respond to that. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's kind of what I've what I've seen and interpreted. Okay. And it goes okay. a lot. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say definitely, and that. There's just this whole, what I consider a language of mathematics that involves obviously, you know, your regular English speaking and uh, writing and listening and all those types of things, but this whole other score of vocabulary, particularly in, you know, geometry and subjects like that, where it's a whole new language to learn. Yeah, which, which actually, you know, there's been a lot of research and articles that I've read over the last year or so about how, if, if done right, that actually gives English learners not necessarily an advantage, but kind of puts them on the same playing field because everybody's kind of learning this vocabulary together, of course, depending on what grade level you're teaching and how much experience the students have. Um, and just understanding that these students may actually have the skills to do the math, but not necessarily the academic language to be able to produce it or to understand it when it's in word problems and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Which goes to that that expression, like there, here's an expression that 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 I've heard since I started teaching. And it's, you know, every teacher is a teacher of language. And as a language teacher, as a foreign language teacher, that was an expression that I always really loved. 
But as time went on, I kind of realized that it's not always the case. Um, although now it does seem like there's way more teachers buying into that um, and doing that than there used to be, which is great. Um, and so what that means, if there's a lot of teachers buying in, is that students have a good amount of language support throughout the school day. In your experience, is that the case for math and more specifically what you were just talking about, which is the language of math? Well, if I'm going to be honest, in my experience, not necessarily. I do want to sort of preface my response with, I do believe that communication is one of the most important human skills that, that we have. Um, we need it in our personal lives, professional, school work, et cetera. Um, so, you know, speaking and listening and reading and writing are essential. Um, that being said, as I mentioned before, there is this whole other language of mathematics. And there are a lot of people and not just students, adults as well, who have just this aversion and can carry that on with, you know, if a student went to an ELE teacher, this is completely hypothetical, you know, theoretically asking a math question, they would say something like, oh, I'm not a math teacher. But if that same student came to me asking about like, I don't know, the plot of The Great Gatsby, I would at least be able to speak to it without like, oh, I'm not an English teacher. So I believe we're all language teachers and that's fine. But I guess what I'm hoping is to loosen the lid a little bit on everybody thinking they're also a math teacher. Yeah. A language of math teacher, at least. It's, it's, you brought up a really interesting point and I'm tempted to, to like go down the rabbit hole here, but I, th I think we'll kind of leave it there because I think it's another podcast, another topic for another time, <laughs> but it's really interesting to think about. And I guess the only, the only way I'll kind of sum that up is by saying that I think you're right. Like it's, it's so easy for someone like me who is a language teacher. I, and I've, I would been in that situation during study halls or whatever in high school when kids would come up to me and say, hey, like I have this algebra. I'm like, I am not a math person. I can't help you with that, you know? And if I did try to help, I may have done more harm than good. Um, so, it, it, you know, you have to have those supports. That's the challenge of being, of you know, for, for the students to be able to kind of go to someone to get help during their downtime. And now certainly during asynchronous time as well, which presents a whole lot of challenges and a whole lot of opportunities as well. Agreed. And we'll just go a little bit down the rabbit hole. And Let's in another it. school I worked at, they had a resource room, which is great. Like resources are great. And there would be, you know, they'd have a special period to go there, not specifically for math, like for anything. Um, and I had a teacher in there um, working with one of my students who had that kind of response, like, oh, I don't know, I'm not a math teacher. And I think a couple of things there. First of all, let's just all own, like, we don't all know everything, even as a teacher. And it's okay to say to a student, you know what, I'm not sure. Here's a book, let's look it up. Let's call Miss Burgreen or let's put a pin in this and we'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, you know, that that type of thing and, and kind of owning, like I don't know everything and don't pretend you know it, it's not gonna be helpful. Um, but also I guess just a plug to, to remember that math is a specialty and there are, you know, teachers in every building who have that specialty. And just to consider maybe as an admin, like maybe the best resource to have a particular period of a day would be a math teacher and make that class specifically, you know, a small group of students that need extra help with math. And then they have that expert there to support them. Yeah. Which this is even more down the rabbit hole, but what, <laughs> like what, what affordances does this new sort of remote learning piece and asynchronous learning provide to be able to do that in a more flexible way. When you're in school, you're thinking, well, I need that. Like as an administrator, I know how it is. Like you're thinking, I need that math teacher for calf duty. Like there's no way that we can just have a cafeteria full of hundreds of kids, you know, unsupervised. And I think most teachers would say like calf, 
to charity duty is probably like one of the worst things that you can have in terms of of actually doing something that's useful. I mean, you're you're obviously hopefully socially, you know, speaking with kids and everything else, and certainly controlling it. But um, but I see you know somebody being available for math help, uh, probably a little bit more. Um, Agreed. And two things on that. I mean, I've heard of schools that use bus drivers for things like that. Like there are the resources, but as far as the async, we can learn something from higher ed, I think, which is like office hours. Um, maybe you just set aside a time three to four every day. This is where you can go and set up a Zoom meeting with Ms. Bergreen or Ms. Mr. Whoever, you know, just to get that targeted support that, that you really need. Yeah, and I'm seeing that happen a little bit more now, which is really good. It's a really positive thing. Hi, everyone. I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to highest aspirations. Um, okay, let's reel it in a little bit. Let's talk okay. about some of the um, the current challenges we're facing and maybe what the future might look like. So a couple weeks ago, I read a New York Times article um, that the title was 13,000 districts, 13,000 approaches to teaching during COVID. I, and I was intrigued the title like roped me in, great title. Mm. Um, but it was, a, it was, or and it was a really good article. Um, and it kind of put things in perspective. So obviously with so many different learning models being deployed from in-person to fully remote to everything in between, it can be really difficult to design tools that work for all, particularly for English learners who, as we know, are not this like homogeneous group. There's a whole spectrum of English learners. That's a shout out to Vicky Saldala from Broward, who every time I say English learner says, it's a heterogeneous group. You got to make sure you talk about the whole spectrum. So Vicky, uh, I'm, I'm doing what you told me. Um, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, it can be it can be really difficult to design tools that work for everybody. So, from your experience, what are some components um, uh, of effective support tools for math instruction? What works for most situations? Let's say. Sure. I mean, and first of all, just because you you bring up the thirteen thousand and all that, I, I just want to give a shout out to every single teacher out there this year. It, teaching is hard under the best of circumstances, and this year is just. I'm sure even you know exponentially more difficult, um, particularly I think in those models where this, the teacher has in-person and like a, a remote as well at the same time um, and just managing that, so. Which is becoming all, more and more common, by the yep. way. That's becoming like, there's more, you know, you gotta do different things at different times. Um, so anyway, as far as tools, I mean, we at Elevation really are looking to make tools that make teachers' lives easier. And it's it's uh, something I feel like, at least hopefully, that I can really relate to because, you know, having done it before, and like I just said, even under the best of times, um, it's extremely difficult work. So, you know, ease of, let's say, assignments, ease of you have a curriculum, I can align certain primers to them, you can just assign them super easily. Um, so I think it's that type of thing. It's the targeted for students. What do they actually need? Not just my students don't know fractions. So let's just pile them all with a huge fraction review. So really, um, you know, making sure that you're giving that targeted instruction and making sure that it's really easy for teachers to use, to assign, and then to also 
um, you know, gather data, let's, you know, like light assessment data and be able to use that then to drive instruction. So really being able to easily fit into that instructional cycle and, and loop and make teachers' lives easier. That's what I try to do every day. Yeah. And you just brought up two things that I want to take a bit of a deeper dive into. And one is making teachers' lives easier. And two is assessment. Uh, and maybe they can kind of overlap sort of mm -hmm. in, in many ways as well. Sure. I, I feel like there's this, it's hard for some people to say, you know, my goal is to make teachers' lives easier because I feel like they think that that is taking away from making sure that students have access to rigorous instruction. Do you know what I mean? Mm, it's like, I do. well, is our job to make teachers' lives easier or is it to make sure that students are going to be successful? But it's so crucially important. And you look at it like with just thinking about, you know, I trained when I trained for elevation, I was training for our, our platform, which is a mm -hmm. it was basically a compliance tool to make sure that you could get the data that you needed, organize it the way you want and report it out. That's a time saving tool, but it also frees up teachers to do other things that are more important or that not that are more important, but that are more kind of acute and they need to deal with right away. Um, so I guess all that being said is how do we do both? How do we create a tool that makes teachers' lives easier and also has an impact and, effect and an immediate effect on the students that they're serving? Is that possible or are those two things that can work together? Well, the way I see it is like you have to be able to help the teachers so that they can help the students, right? Um, and so I think that the the main tool or at least what we're what I'm trying to do at Elevation would be not to, I don't, I don't, maybe easier made it seem wrong, but like knowing that you only have a certain amount of time in a day and that already is probably going to be 10 hours a day, you know, either at school or grading or planning or whatever. Um, so to, to have the type of tools where this is perfectly aligned to your curriculum, um, I know, you know, I'm going to be teaching, you know, adding fractions tomorrow. So the day before, they could assign an elevation math primer and you know it's very easy to use and see it's aligned to your standards and your scope and sequence, et cetera. Um, to be able to front load the academic vocabulary that students are going to see in the classroom the next day or the day after, you know, it's a preparation. And I just want to clarify um, uh, on the front loading that it's not like what I remember when I was in English class, like we'd get a list of 15 words and then the homework was write a sentence and you could be like, my mom is capricious next, you know, and it's like, so that's, that's not what, that's not what we're doing. Um, the, the vocabulary is introduced in such a way that it is an engaging story and they're exposed to the words that they will, you know, and the math concepts as well, lightly, um, not trying to take the place of what the teacher is doing, but to take a little bit of that load off um, you know, outside of the classroom or before. I mean, there's different imp different implementation models, um, but just to be able to have that opportunity, expose them to that academic vocabulary, the language of math, as we've been talking about a little bit before. So they're just a little bit more ready once they get to class. So it's not trying to take something away. It's trying to be a time saver and really be a support that is going to help your students see in the classroom and you'll be able to see it, you know, on their face and their responses and everything. They're like, oh, I've heard this before. I'm starting to get it. And then they're they're finally getting there. I really appreciate you clarifying the term front loading because I think that's like, I, I don't mean this in, in, to be punny in any way, but it's a loaded question or it's a loaded <laughs> yeah. word, you know? Yes. 
Um, because we all have, I conjure up that image like as a first, second, third, maybe fourth year teacher teaching Spanish. Be like, here's your vocabulary. We'll have a quiz next week. And like, you quickly learn that that's not, that's not working, right? That's not the way that we, we want to do things. Um, and I also like, I appreciate you also talking about this and I, I'm going to kind of phrase it a little bit differently and tell me if I'm wrong, but like, you're kind of, it's like, it's like when you have routines, right? Uh, in yes. your class, we talked with Grace Kellamanic and Amy Lucenta. They wrote the book routines for reasoning about math, particularly mm -hmm. for students in vulnerable populations about how that reduces cognitive load. It just helps students to know what's going on when they walk into the room so that they can kind of focus on what's, what's happening. So I have to think that a routine in combination with familiarity with some of the academic language is going to do is going to go really far in reducing that cognitive load so that while they may not be completely 100% you know uh um uh there on what the words are or initially on what the routines are the fact that they're in place um helps them kind of function in a better way in in class when they get there am i on track there 100% totally agree that's the goal yeah and like i can see that in my own experience like i tinkered with um this is probably 10 years. I don't even know when, when the flipped classroom was a first, a thing, mm. like I kind of bought in right away. And I, I remember using tools that, that nobody that was like had Edmodo was the old, like, um, Google classroom. That was the first okay. iteration of like a, and I used that only so that I could kind of house my videos. And the whole point of what I was trying to do, and I don't think I knew it at the time was to try to get students familiar so that we went into class, they didn't have this, it wasn't like this huge burden to teach all the vocabulary that they needed to talk about a concept. We were talking about literature in some cases and short stories and films, and I wanted them to have some of the language. And I found great success in that. The problem is that I had to create all that stuff. I, and there's a YouTube oh. channel still up there somewhere, of like <laughs> all my stuff, and people actually still go there, which is surprising. But anyway, I, I just see, I see that in being, and also the other thing about the flipped classroom, I think where I was going with that is that those videos exist. Um, I imagine much like the primers in terms of they can be kind of deployed in whatever environment the teacher wants them to be deployed in. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, our main implementation model and the reason we call them primers is if you think about like priming your wall before you paint it, that is the sort of, you know, first step. Um, so yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I just, I, there's there's a lot to that. And again, thanks for the the um, clarifying the front loading piece. All right, how about assessment? Um, mm. th this is now proven difficult top to bottom. I mean, there's, you know, there's schools are, that lack assessment data right now. They're relying on um, sort of formative assessment in the form of what they're doing with their students, or even in some case, getting monitoring forms from English learners to kind of, from other teachers to inform them of their progress. Um, standardized tests have been difficult to implement, obviously, due to COVID. There's all kinds of questions around that still. Um, in remote and hybrid classrooms, teachers are having trouble deploying formative assessments that effectively gauge student progress. So are there solutions to these problems that will serve us now and that we can still use in the future so we don't have to reinvent the wheel again when <laughs> we go back to school? Sure. Um, I'm not going to claim to have the solution to this because, um, it, you know, it's it's a tough it's a tough one. I would um, question you if you did. <laughs> I know it all. No. Um, so I would say too that one of the harder things that I, well one of the things I used to use the most as a formative assessment, which can be so many things, but it can also be just a quick check, which I'm sure teachers are struggling with now. Is just looking around the room and you know you you can't see their faces, and so it's you know it's it's that's a challenge. Um, the um, the main thing I would suggest as far as formative assessment um, is, I guess, two things. One is 
keep it open-ended, keep it kind of low stakes. Um, so you don't necessarily want to ask a question like, is this a proportional relationship where you're going to elicit that yes or no? Say like, okay, here, you know, here, well, one half and two fourths are in a proportional relationship. What's another proportional relationship or that type of thing? Um, so leave it really more open-ended and give students a chance to, you know, really, really respond using whatever language they have. You know, that's the other thing too, is math It's very important to write in math, but I'm not going to be concerned about did they put the period or a comma in the right place just like express your thoughts on on paper. The other thing I think is really interesting and this could be assessment and I think instruction as well um, is to give students agency. Um, I read a really interesting NCTM article about this in particular with word problems, as we know, um, across the board, you know, students tend to struggle with that. So you could give them a, you know, a three sentence word problem, it's going to happen eventually. But like, what if you just start with a scenario, like Pam and Steve both like to run and just kind of say, what do you think happens next? And let them kind of like build the story and build the, you know, and if they go too far, like trees and parks, you know, you can rein them in a, a little bit like, well, how far did they run? You know, like you can ask them some types of questions like that. But I think giving them agency is really important. Um, and really lends itself to that like authentic modeling that I believe that the you know writers of the Common Core, particularly, I'm um, talking about Math Practice Four model with mathematics. That is that agency that really um, goes a really really long way with students. Um, and I guess sorry, the the one other thing I'll, I'll point out too, which I think is really great, um, which is an elevation strategy, is a self rating, um, and it's something you can do ahead of time and after, like, you know, maybe right after you give them the primer and then after um, you, you give them a lesson on it. and it could be about vocabulary, it could be about, you know, two plus two equals four, how do you feel about this or whatever. But just again, like speaking to that agency and having students say like, I don't, oh, I feel really good about this or I'm not really sure. And, and that again, like, you know, you can use that to drive your instruction moving forward. Yeah, let's see. I was following along. Let's see if I can kind of put these together because here's okay. what I'm thinking. You you first started talk about talk about um, sort of open ended, low stakes, formative assessment. Is it fair to say that those assessments are not only assessments but also opportunities to build students' confidence? Absolutely. So if that's the case, then self rating kind of allows them to to figure out oh, I'm pretty confident in that, or no, I'm not that confident in that. Whereas that agency allows them to kind of bring in something that's interesting to them so that it's relevant. So these all really tie together. Mm -hmm. The only place that I would that I would ask you to, to say more on is with agency, agency can go rogue. Like agency can, mm. like you were saying, like you, you tell the story, but you have to stop it at some point where, you know, it just go, it's not now kind of off topic. Right. So what's the structure that needs to be in place so that you can kind of rein in that agency, but still give students like that freedom that they need? Do you know what I mean? Because with all, sure. or I won't say with all, I'll say myself, I've been the, I've been the person who said, we're going to do this amazing project and here it is, go for it. And then it's like, everybody's off the rails right mm -hmm. away. So where's the balance? Where's the structure place in place? Um, I think it relates back to what you were talking before about building routines. So I don't know that on, you know, day one of school that you should just be like, Pam and Steve like to run, you know, that you might actually start with, um, 
you know, a, a, an entire problem and then have students react to it and then say, well, what if we just looked at the first sentence of this? Write down anything that, that you think is important. Is there anything that's not important here that we don't need? And you can use different strategies of like circle the numbers and, you know, cross out things that are not relevant and things like that. Um, to really, like you were saying, sort of build up this routine. I don't think that you can really start off with that on the first day, um, but it, let it be something like, okay, I don't know, every Wednesday we're gonna do and I notice I wonder or something like that. And, you know, start with that whole problem, gauge their reaction and then say, okay, well, what if we just looked at this one part? Um, so I think it's part of building routines and, you know, teachers know their students better than anybody else. And also know that, you know, there were years I taught five sections of ninth grade math and things that went swimmingly in period two then yeah. were like a disaster in period five. So I think it's also about knowing which students to put together. And, you know, if these two, you know, are like super good friends and they're just going to go off on that, you know, if we're continuing with this Pam and Steve, you know, go for a run and they're going to be all about the trees and the flowers in the park, maybe split those two up and, you know, just kind of group them, group them differently. So I think it's about routines and then teachers knowing their students and, and just putting the right students together. Yeah. And that goes back to what people are talking about throughout, particularly throughout this pandemic, like what has been a huge focus is building relationships, which has always been important. But like, if you don't know your students and they don't know you, then you're going to have a big problem now. Um, so yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Cause I think that's, that's an important thing to mention. The other thing that I'll highlight from what you said um, that I think goes without saying, given our audience, we're, we're talking mostly about English learners here mm -hmm. is um, that you don't have to worry about language when they start to put the, when that during that formative assessment, when they're putting something in the chat or they're trying to produce some low mm -hmm. stakes, it, it can be really, it's easy to say, but harder to do to sort of sure. avoid that. And I know as a language teacher, like that's mm -hmm. not capitalized. There's no period there. What do you mean? That's the wrong gender. So um, I think that's really crucial as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's shift gears. I want, we, we just kind of talked about this really briefly earlier when I was talking about, um, you know, some of Elevation's tools with the compliance piece and, and data and visualizing data. Using data to drive instruction uh, has always been kind of the gold standard. Um, but now, as we were talking about before, data isn't always uh, as easy to come by. Um, and even when it is, it can be really difficult to organize and share in a way that makes an impact. That's been kind of the challenge that we've been trying to solve for, for a long time. Um, what are some of the ways educators can do this um, now as many of them are still in like survival mode. I mean, it's, it's like almost like an extra thing. And what might be the consequences if we're not able to do it effectively? I know that's a tough question, but I think it's top of mind right now. Mm. People, it's like teachers don't want to do one more thing and, and, and I get it, but this is so important. It is important. And again, like the assessment question, I'm just gonna say upfront, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I have a few ideas. Um, so as far as consequences and, you know, again, it, this is obviously going to be a huge challenge for probably some years to come. But if we aren't seeing where our students are at this point, you know, versus where they were last year at this time, that it is important to have, you know, just some kind of understanding of like where our students are so that we can, you know, know what they're good at and highlight their strengths and also say, okay, well, this is still an area we need to work on. And here's some targeted instruction to be able to um, deal with that. The term using data to drive instruction, it, you know, it, it almost is like, you know, it rolls off the tongue because it, it, it's almost just become like, 
I don't know, an expression, like a stitch in time saves nine. Um, yeah, 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 I know what you mean. So, I, you know, and again, not to, I, I'm plugging a little bit, but I really do feel like at Elevation and specifically here, I'm going to talk about the data that you can gather from a primer actually really enables teachers to do that in an easy way. The primers have three like little assessments. One is a confidence question, which is this open-ended type of thing we were talking about before. They have an emoji scale where they can, you know, again, do a little self-reading and see how they're doing. And then we have five vocab questions and five math questions. Um, so it's short, um, but on one page, you can see every, every response from the confidence questions, which allows students to be able to write. So you can see, how are they writing? Are they writing in Spanish or their native language? That's fine. You know, I had to ask one of my colleagues who speaks Spanish, like, can you just translate this for me? Are they, you know, using the right terminology? Are they using academic language um, and things like that? So, um, and, you know, like I said, just five vocab questions, five math questions based entirely on, you know, what they just learned. And in one page, you know, you can just click a button and on one page, you can see all the results. You can see an average of the class or everyone who took the primer okay, well, the class average on the vocab test was 75. And then I can hover over, you know, one question and see even by student name, who got it right and who got it wrong. Um, so I think that that, that I feel like for me anyway, that this is the first product I've ever worked for where I felt like that wasn't just an expression. Um, and we have a whole team of amazing people who are dedicated to making that you know, easier and faster and everything, you know, for teachers, for teachers to use. And I think you know, that's, I think, a first step in a way. And for students or for teachers who aren't yet using Elevation, I definitely think this is the time to really lean into technology. Um, and I know that might be hard, you know, for some people. And like you said, there's so many other things going on, but this is a time to talk to your coach, to talk to your admin, if you don't have the technology resources that you need, that, that you really do need them. And, you know, that's the type of thing that even hopefully one day when COVID is over and we're all back to normal, whatever that means, um, that that type of thing is something you could continue to use. Yeah. And I appreciate the way that you framed that. I mean, I, and again, I kind of go back to my own experience, the structure and agency, um, never really relying on textbooks, building all my own stuff with flipped classroom, being really proud of it. But the thing that I was missing was aside from like, some video tools that I used to use like um, to kind of gauge interaction. I wasn't able to really get any visualizations of data or really understand how my materials were working. Um, mm -hmm. And I never really knew at that time of anything that probably at that time there was nothing that you could mm -hmm. use for, for that. Um, but the ability to kind of integrate that data piece and really know right away where you are in very short bursts, but then over time being able to track it um, I think it's crucial. And I, and I, I, I won't say much else. I think you can rewind maybe a minute or two and listen to what you said, because I think you said it a lot more uh, eloquently than I would, but I appreciate that. Um, so, uh, Pam, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody else as we wrap okay. up here. Um, this is a question that I think might be a selfish one because I end up with a great library of books that I get <laughs> to read. Um, but it's also useful for others as well, I hope. So is there a book or another resource that's influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share. It doesn't have to be mathy, but it can if you want it to be. Mathy, did I invent that term, mathy? Is that a term you that you did. used? did, I've used it many times before. So oh good, that's just okay. making sure. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if uh, Miriam Webster would agree, but it's fine <laughs> with me. Um, the book I'm gonna recommend is called The Daily Stoic 
Um, it's a, uh, Ryan Holiday is the author. Um, basically it's like short meditations. Um, I see it more as mindfulness. Um, so each page, um, sorry, each day of the year is, has a separate page and each month has, um, a theme. So the month of February is about emotions. And, um, so it's just a one pager and it's just kind of like you, it takes a minute or two to read. So you can do it every day as you're having your coffee or, you know, whatever in the morning, the one um, for today was about anger and how um, it's just a feckless, useless, toxic emotion um, and just kind of thinking about. So it's like mindfulness. And I really think um, I think I kind of alluded to it before, but particularly, you know, when you're teaching or around students that you really need to make sure um, you're taking care of yourself um, so that you can take care of somebody else. It's like that airplane, you know, put your oxygen on yourself first before your child, because if you pass out, you're not gonna be able to help them, right? So it's just that that kind of thing. So make sure you're taking care of yourself. It takes one minute to read the day. Um, so that's what I'm gonna plug. That's great. I'm gonna order that one for cool. sure. That's another one that I've gotten from uh, from guests, which is awesome. I hope other people will as well. And I like the I like that it's short and you can do it every day. Mm -hmm. And it's funny you talk about the oxygen mask piece and helping others or helping yourself so you can help uh, with others. It, 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 we're going full circle here because back in I think it was April or late March when we started the Look for the Helper series, which was really just bringing people on when nobody knew what was going on to say. Mm -hmm this is hard. What am I going to do? And here's what I'm challenged. And, and a lot of people came on and talked about those things. The thing that they said more than anything else is self-care, take care of yourself again, so that you can um, take care of others. So I love it that we're back to that as well. Okay. Last question. How can people, what's the best way to learn about the work that you or we are doing, whatever sort of applicable to this uh, conversation? Sure. I'm going to share two things here. So the first would be um, to check out Elevation's distance learning site, so it's distance.elevationeducation.com. Um, and on there, you'll see, we adapted in March or April of last year, um, 12 of our primers to be Google Slides. Um, so they have the read aloud function that is so important in our primers. The only thing that it, it doesn't have the, the highlighting feature, um, but you can get sort of the read aloud there. And the best part about what we have on our distance learning that is not available with every primer, at least at this point, is an activity sheet to go along with it. Um, and we really try to think about like knowing at this time, particularly, you know, in April of last year, like you just mentioned, like no one knows what is going on, that it's really important to try to make connections at home. So there's like some ideas of activities that you can do at home and you can involve your sibling or parent or grandparent. You could also do it on your own. Just for an example, like one of the primers is about a student, uh, um, a, the character taking a train to visit his grandmother. And while he's on the train, he's choosing from the snack menu. So one of the at-home activities is make your own snack menu. What do you have in the fridge or the cabinet and like assign prices and, you know, that type of thing to sort of like really, um, we were really very conscious about trying to connect it to, to home and knowing that students were home and like ways to kind of hopefully make it fun, you know, make a coordinate grid out of socks, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, it just reminds me of a conversation I had with a math teacher just recently from Austin ISD. His name's Steven Mendoza. Awesome, inspirational guy. Um, that podcast has actually been released. You can already listen, you listen to that one. But he was talking about the importance of making those home connections. And he was also talking about the challenge of doing that when you don't know what's going on at a student's home and you don't have the materials. You have to build all that stuff and create it. So here's a great resource. 
um, that's free and available to everyone um, that you can use. And it also kind of get you a little bit of a taste of what um, the Elevation Math is is all about and some of our other, our other products as well. Um, so we'll link to that um, in the show notes. And we'll also link to the book, which is called The Daily Stoic. And, and go ahead. No, I was just going to share my email. I'm, I'm happy to talk about math with anyone who would like to. So it's pamela.burgreen at elevationeducation.com. Maybe you could link that in the podcast as well, just in case my last name is might be hard to spell. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and and I would definitely reach out to Pam if you can. She's uh, she's very patient with us folks who aren't math experts and is someone who clearly uh, is really passionate about not only uh, math, but how it applies to working with English learners. Um, and, and with that, Pam, it's been really fun chatting with you in a different kind of context here and bringing you on to Highest Aspirations to share your expertise. So thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. It was great. That's it for this episode of Highest Aspirations. But before we go, here's this week's teacher shout out. Hi, my name is Carolina Lopez, and I am the bilingual ESL strategist at Wesleco ISD here in Deep South Texas. I'd like to send a special shout out to all of our teachers at Wesleco ISD, our teachers of English learners, bilingual teachers, and ESL teachers who work day in and day out to make sure that all of our English learners have exactly what they need to be successful. Thank you. Your work does not go unnoticed. We appreciate you and we could not ask for better teachers than who we have on board. Again, muchas gracias, felicidades y bendiciones. To submit your shout out, go to elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.